0: Thanks, Louise. I'm sure um, it wasn't just the children who got something from that today. Um, I'll just ask uh, Stephanie to come forward and read for us. And then Stephen will bring um, the word of God after that. Gracious Father, we thank you that as we read your word, um, we can hear it. We ask, Lord, that uh, we would listen and that you would take it into our hearts. Thank you for uh, Stephen's message to us. Thank you that is uh, your message to us. Help him to speak your words clearly and with boldness. Well, good morning, everybody. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Well, today we begin a short series of sermons on the book of Isaiah. What do we know about Isaiah, son of Amos? Well, actually, we know quite a bit about this man, and quite a bit, actually, about the turbulent times in which he lived. But if we might begin anywhere with respect to saying what we know about Isaiah, we could start by saying, well, Isaiah was a prophet. What is a prophet? Well, actually, it's worth taking a moment to clarify what the Bible means when it calls someone a prophet. It's commonly understood that a prophet is someone who predicts the future. Alternatively, in the ancient world, the word prophet often functions simply to mean expert. For example, someone could be a famous prophet of botany. In other words, they were an expert on plants. In today's world, when someone is described as being a prophet, it might mean that they are the lone voice of righteousness, functioning perhaps as a whistleblower, calling people to repent of bad behavior or of entrenched morally wrong values. And All of these ideas have some merit. There's truth in each one. But all such statements are in themselves inadequate as definitions of the title prophet. Now, a prophet is someone who speaks to people on behalf of God. God's spokesperson. Whether we are talking about someone in the Old Testament or the New Testament gift, of prophecy, we are talking about being God's spokesperson, speaking on behalf of God, inspired by God. And the book of Isaiah, all 66 chapters of it, brings to us Isaiah's vision in the singular not meaning something he saw whilst in a trance-like state, a hallucination produced by hunger or spirit or some uh, um, food or indeed even the Holy Spirit, but rather in this context, vision meaning revelation. The whole thing, a unity, a revelation. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah was a prophet, bringing first to the people of Jerusalem and after that to all people everywhere, for all time, God's words. In oracles, poems, prose, dreams, visions, parables and plays, Isaiah brings us the word of God. And there is nothing more important for us to do as human beings the most important thing for any human being to do is to attend to the Word of God. And it is that explicit purpose that has brought us here together today to hear what the Lord, the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, what he has to say through Isaiah, his prophet, his spokesperson. So today we start with chapter 1. And chapter 1 is a very good place to start. And that's because chapter 1 does a pretty good job of summarizing the entire book of Isaiah. Chapter 1 shows us his major themes to be found within the book. And its themes are indeed found again and again in the Bible and especially in the New Testament. So let's look at Isaiah's themes, his message summarized. What is it? Firstly, behold, people caught in sin. Isaiah comes to convict the people of doing the wrong thing. So therefore, behold, destruction is coming. God inflicted suffering. This suffering, this destruction is directly related to the sin. It is punishment, in other words. The judgment of God is coming, the day of the Lord. This announcement comes early, ahead of time, so that people may repent. Indeed, the whole point of a forewarning of judgment is so that people may turn around and be saved. Forgiveness is on offer. The announcement of judgment, therefore, in the Bible, is also always a declaration of salvation. Judgment and salvation are linked, two sides of the one coin. You don't need salvation if there's no judgment. But with judgment always in the Bible comes the possibility of salvation. The suffering that is coming will destroy the wicked. That's unequivocal. This world, this planet, this universe ultimately has no place for people who ignore God and break his rules. But, and perhaps paradoxically, that same suffering, that same suffering will refine the faith of the righteous. They'll go through it too. But those who put their trust in God, in the God of the Bible, revealed through his prophet, through his word, will experience his salvation at work through this time of suffering and indeed grow in their understanding of him, in in the wonder of his power and graciousness, trusting in him more and more. And so... God is acting so as to rid the world of wickedness, and in doing so, save unto himself a faithful remnant. This faithful remnant will fulfill the purposes God has for them. They will will fulfill, by God's grace, their creation mandate. They will be, to use one particular biblical phrase, a blessing to the nations. So that's Isaiah's message in a nutshell. With respect to chapter 1, let's now take a closer look. The people have been caught in sin. In this instance, in this first instance of chapter 1, it is the people of God themselves, the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, for judgment begins with the people of God. And here is the judgment They do not know their God. Verse 3, even an ox can recognize its master. Even a donkey knows where to get, get its food. But the people of Judah, the population of Jerusalem, don't know who God is. And we get a picture of Jerusalem's sin, which is fundamentally idolatry. The worship of other gods, the worship of things as though they were gods. Verse 21, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. Adultery and prostitution are common metaphors in the Old Testament for idolatry, the vileness of spiritual unfaithfulness. And verse 29 refers to sacred oak trees in which the people have delighted and gardens that they have chosen. God is, is not against horticulture No, this is about idolatry, the worship of the Canaanite fertility gods. Such worship may have indeed involved unrestricted sexual congress and therein lay the attraction, but also therein lay the danger of people who regard others as objects to be used. And in verses 21 to 23, we hear how this spiritual prostitution played out in terms of human relationships. Human life viewed cheaply. Murder, bribes and corruption, injustice and oppression. The poor getting poorer. The rich getting richer. The people of God have been caught in sin. They do not know their God. And they are destroying each other as a result. Therefore, destruction is coming. This destruction, uh, we, we notice, is personified in verses 5 and 6. The prophet speaking to the people of Judah, to the populace of Jerusalem, as though to a single person. Uh, Isaiah says, verse 5, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. You're whole heart afflicted from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Then in verses 7 and 8, a prediction of the future. Isaiah sees what the Assyrians will bring. Less than 30 years from the time at which he speaks. Verse 7, your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. And indeed, the land will be left as a desolate wasteland by the Assyrian invaders. We'll find all, that all out not too long from here as we continue reading the book of Isaiah. Um, but the Assyrians will not take it as their own territory. And Israel will not go into exile. So Judah will not go into exile, not this time, not, not like Israel, their, their, their sister nation to the north. But the desolation is coming. It's avoidable. That's the point of the message. But one thing we can be absolutely sure of from the book of Isaiah, the Lord God Almighty is the Lord of history. Not only does he know what will happen, he is sovereignly in charge of what will happen. It does not happen without his full understanding and consent and control. He knows the end from the beginning. God-inflicted suffering is on its way. Therefore, repent. There is still time. God is gracious and forgiving and slow to anger. Turn back before it's too late. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter together, says the Lord. Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient... You will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, Fire from God will be an effective tool for twin missions. The destruction of the wicked together with the strengthening of the faith of the righteous. But both wicked and righteous will suffer together. But the outcome of their sufferings will be different. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. This will leave a faithful remnant, the dross purified out, A faithful remnant. Verse 9, unless the Lord Almighty had left off some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And this purified remnant will be a blessing to the nations. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. This is Isaiah's gospel. This is Christ's gospel. This is also the gospel of the apostles. Watch for these things and you'll see them everywhere, especially in the New Testament. So that's chapter 1 in its major themes. Major themes, indeed, of the whole of the book of Isaiah. Are there... Any specific features here now in chapter 1, though, that we, we must take note of before we move forward? Well, the answer to that is, is, is yes, of course. Perhaps the most extraordinary feature of this chapter is Isaiah's litany against the operation of the temple. From verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah the multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening, your hands are full of blood. This is astonishing because the operation of the sacrificial system within the temple was, we know from God's word, it was extremely important to God. From, from Mount Sinai onwards, from the point of them being given the Ten Commandments, about 30% of the rest of the law of Moses is devoting to make sure that the Israelites got this stuff right burnt offerings sin offerings fellowship offerings drink offerings grain offerings incense offerings the temple set up and furniture priestly garments and ministry feast days and festivals sabbaths and new moon celebrations this stuff is incredibly important enormously significant to the covenant of Moses, the legally binding relationship agreement Israel had with her God, the Lord of heaven and earth. And these detailed instructions that go on for chapters are peppered with phrases like a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And this is a lasting ordinance for all generations. This is not trivial stuff. They haven't made this up as they were going along. This is the very substance of worship under the old covenant. This is how they were to be forgiven, by the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. And yet, through Isaiah, his prophet, the Lord is saying, I can't bear it. Stop it. And that final statement is, your hands are full of blood, becomes an observation rich in irony. At one level, the hands of priests were supposed to be bloody, for there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. They're supposed to have blood on their hands. Israel's future depends on it. But now, of course, the hands of the people are full of blood in another way, the innocent blood of victims of oppression, cruelty, corruption, and violence. Now, you you may remember that we started today with a quick look at that word prophet and what it means, and we proposed several answers before settling on one answer, God's spokesperson. Another explanation of the Old Testament prophetic ministry and an explanation that's popular and that gets discussed a lot by theologians in places like Bible colleges is the title Covenant Policeman. Covenant Policeman is another good, another partially good understanding of the role of the Old Testament prophet. And that's because the covenant, that relationship agreement that God made with his people through the mediation of Moses at Mount Sinai, it had terms and conditions, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And if you look at those curses in such places as Deuteronomy, chapter 28, you'll see that if Israel gave herself over to the sins of the Canaanites who were in the land before Israel, if the nation was grossly disobedient to her God and worshipped alien gods, then domination by foreign powers would be part of the deal, even up to and including exile from the land, even up to and including complete destruction for those who remained stubbornly unrepentant. So then, with respect to Isaiah chapter 1, this is that. This is, this is what Israel has been guilty of. This is what God is going to do about it, according to the terms that they signed off on at like Mount Sinai. Out of bounds, screams Isaiah, the covenant policeman. Only that's not exactly right, is it? Because if Isaiah really was a fair copper, he'd have said something like, look, your dedication to liturgical correctness is absolutely first class. But can't you see that you have to keep the whole law? You you keep... Keep going, yes, keep going with the sacrifices, the feasts and the festivals, the new moon and Sabbath observances. Do not neglect them, but rather devote yourselves also to the more weighty matters of justice and mercy, compassion and righteousness. No, no, like others, covenant policemen contains elements that are useful, elements that are true, but it's not entirely right. It's limited. For Isaiah and we can see him doing it here, is indeed shouting out of bounds, to be sure, but not pointing back to the old covenant as the answer, but rather he will point forward, just as all of the Old Testament prophets do, they point forward to something new as the only real solution. This is what is extraordinary. The temple sacrificial system is God-given, and it is important. It does indeed offer forgiveness. That's the whole point, but not here. It will not, it cannot make these people clean. Wash and make yourselves clean, verse 16. Must somehow be reconciled with stop bringing meaningless offerings, verse 13. It is confusing. It is a mystery that needs to be solved. And no one will be surprised to hear me say that Jesus is the key. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the mystery. In other words, the solution to the mystery. Isaiah himself will, and we'll see this for ourselves, he will keep on pointing to God, as the one who takes upon himself the punishment for covenant unfaithfulness through his Messiah, through his suffering servant, through the one who will come in the power of the Spirit, through his Son. The grace of God in the book of Isaiah is that actually the Lord keeps saving Israel despite herself. And there have been hints of this from the beginning, Um, God himself bore the cost of clothing, Adam and Eve, providing them with animal skin coverings when they left the garden. God himself, in the time of Noah, put a rainbow in the sky as the sign of his covenant with Noah and his descendants forever, an archer's bow pointing up. And with Abraham, it was God Himself who passed through the animals cut into, and in doing so, in in a reworking of a standard ancient Near Eastern covenantal um, uh, uh, procedure, in doing so, in passing between the animals cut into, it was the Lord who promised to take the punishment upon Himself for covenant unfaithfulness. These are extraordinary things, but we don't have time to consider them any further here. But what we do see clearly from our vantage point here in history is that Jesus, the Son of God, suffered. God inflicted suffering unto destruction, dying on the cross. In this, Jesus suffered for the wicked and indeed with the wicked, one on his right and one on his left although he himself was without sin. We deserved the punishment. He took it upon himself. T- to him, uh, the Son of God. And about him is, is the description ultimately we read in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Your, your whole head is injured. Your, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed, not bandaged, not soothed with olive oil. To Christ belong the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Son though he was, he learnt obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, Through the refining fire, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And it is by his blood that we are washed clean. Jesus Christ, the perfect person, the faithful remnant, who fulfills now God's creation mandate for all humanity, showing us the way to be human. And therefore now, there is no punishment for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is finished. Sadly, I wish I could say that this was the end of suffering, that Jesus came to deal with the problem of suffering. But I can't. Because he didn't. Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin. With respect to suffering, Jesus now invites us to follow him through this process, to follow him to the cross, to live cross-shaped lives. In copying Jesus at one level, the cross means living as Jesus lived, living lovingly living sacrificially, willing to lay down our lives for others. But we also understand, of course, that punishment continues because judgment continues. My my God is is a God of wrath who reveals his wrath every day. Psalm 7. Indeed, let the heavens and the earth Hear what Isaiah has to say because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, Romans one eighteen. And so perhaps more to the point today, living cross-shaped lives means understanding that we continue to participate in God's judgment of the world. Earthquakes, famines, wars bushfires, pandemics. We cannot escape these things. But now at least we know what God is up to. Refiner's fire. As, as we trust God in hardship and in difficulty, in suffering, he will reveal himself to his children with lessons that cannot be learnt in times of plenty and peace. And we, we will trust him more. As as we learn to trust him in the hardest moments of all, th- that's when we'll learn that he is trustworthy, That that he has a purpose in it for us, that we'll see him powerfully at work for our well-being is important to him. We also pause in our reflection on this text today to see for ourselves that we can see from this text that it is possible to live a life of outward piety, to be intensely religious and devout in our observances, all the while living while holding God at arm's length. That's possible for us just as it was possible for them, and they did it. The text reminds us that to obey God in some things and not in other things is to not obey him at all. The text reminds us that a life surrendered to Christ in nearly everything is not surrendered to Christ at all. The text reminds us that those who belong to God obey him. Who are they who know Christ and love him? Those who obey him. And what is the obedience that Christ requires? 1 John 4, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother And sister, the Lord be with you.